turn with me to the epistle to the Hebrews. It's way in the back of your Bible. We're going to do the Epistle to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, and today we'll look at verses 1 through 4. That's Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And it reads, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For a little while, I'd like to bring our attention to the supremacy of Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is really about. If you sit and you read and you just try your best to read all the way through, you can't get through the first chapter without recognizing just how wonderful a Savior we have. Just how so far superior he is to everything we can think of. Every human institution, every spiritual being, every fleshly thought. Christ puts an end to any confusion we might have had about whether or not it was worth it to leave everything behind, to take up our cross and to follow him. He's so far supreme, so far more excellent than any and everything we can ever imagine. Think for a moment that you grew up knowing the truth. You knew the truth. You had absolute certainty. No doubt in your mind that the one true God had spoken. You were taught the scriptures as a little child. You were discipled throughout your life. Observing the feasts, the festivals, the celebrations that were designed to bring you back to remembrance of the wonderful works of God throughout the history of your people. And hearing that history over and over, year after year, and clinging to the promise that God would bless the nations through you. You and only you have I known, says the Lord. You're my treasured possession a people holy to the Lord. And also knowing that after God's wonderful work of redemption, freeing your fathers from the bondage of 
slavery in Egypt. He entered into covenant relationship with you, binding himself to you, obligating himself to you, and inviting you to live according to his law, both for your good and for his glory. Making provisions within it to keep you safe, to keep you clean and holy before him. And by keeping his law, he promises to bless you above all peoples. He says there'll be none barren among you. He says, I will take away all your sickness. Be careful to do what I command that you may live and multiply and possess the land I swore to give to your fathers. But also hearing about the rebellion, the rebellion that ensued, the unfaithfulness of your people and how the land once flowing with milk and honey spewed them out much like God did to the nations that came before them. But knowing of God's faithfulness and his promise to restore his people, they respond in faith, calling upon his name, humbling themselves greatly, praying and seeking his face, turning from their wicked ways, hoping God would hear them from heaven and heal their land and forgive their sins. And God did just that, bringing home a remnant who clung to his word and his law stronger than ever before. And this clinging, no doubt, brought a profound awareness of sin, of unworthiness, and a commitment to the sacrifices that served as this outward act of an inner repentance, hour after hour, day after day, year after year, and these sacrifices would never stop. Always looking forward to that day that God might restore them wholly, completely, fully, a day in which we might have a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, that promised seed of Abraham to fulfill God's promises in the old covenant. The Jews that the writer to the Hebrews addresses are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They know Jesus. They cling to him, but even after accepting his finished work, and recognizing the reality of this, this new covenant. It was hard to make a clean break with the old. It's not easy to completely forsake your heritage. That history so rich in the faithfulness of God, especially knowing that it's God himself who gave it to you. Knowing that those, some parents, Certainly those in the synagogues that you grew up with are calling you back to sacrifices, calling you back to the ways that your fathers have practiced for so long. 
and yet being told on the other hand that no, there is something better. How strong that desire must have been to retain some form of ceremony or tradition. It's been a part of their lives since childhood. You know, it brings to memory the story Christ tells of sewing an unshrunk cloth to, a, to an old garment or putting new wine into old wineskins. And in both cases, the cloth tears away from the old, ruining both. And likewise, the new wine bursts the old wineskins, ruining both. The epistle to the Hebrews serves to remind us that we're losing nothing for which we're not getting something infinitely better. A new garment, new wine, new skins, so that both can be preserved. The author begins by assuring the reader that their confidence is not misplaced. In verse 1 we read, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. The one true God, creator of heaven and earth, did not create and then stand aside. He's not this mythical watchmaker who makes the watch, winds it up, and then just sets it down. No, God spoke. God revealed himself. He made himself known. Yes, we know him through this general revelation. Many men know him. All do from general revelation. But this is different. This is special. This was particular. God spoke at many times and in many ways to our fathers. Theirs by blood, ours by spirit. God spoke to our fathers. He told Abraham that he would father many nations. It was Isaac that he birthed from the barren womb of Sarah. It was Jacob that he wrestled with and gave the name Israel. It was through Joseph that he gave visions and Dreams to save his people from famine. And it was Moses that he met on a mountainside. And spoke through a burning bush. It was to them that he gave this wonderful promise of land, of people, of relationship. He spoke through the prophets, Moses, through whom we received the law. Samuel, through whom we received the great king. And others throughout history whose sole purpose was to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. To remind them of the wife of their youth, to proclaim boldly what thus says the Lord. But in these last days, this same God, this 
same God who gave this special, this particular revelation of himself to our fathers has spoken to us. Verse 2 presents us with some interesting parallels. One is the parallel of time. Long ago. Long ago, speaking of the time of the prophets, a time that had come to a close. After the deaths of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, the latter prophets, the psalmist even laments, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet and there is none among us who knows how long. All this remaining remnant could do was search the scriptures over and over and cling to any hope or promise that one day God, their God, would speak again. A messenger who would prepare the way before the Lord. It's then and only then that the Lord whom they seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom they delight will come, says Malachi. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Long ago. But in these last days, the days in which the scripture spoke, the days in which Messiah would come, the days in which the Lord would fulfill the promises that he made to the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, when he would cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, one that would execute justice and righteousness in the land, days in which Judah would be saved and Jerusalem would dwell securely. Moses told the people that one day God would raise up a prophet just like him. One who knew God face to face. And God declares, I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And that same promise to raise a prophet like Moses, who knows God face to face, who speaks only the words given him by God, was fulfilled in the Son. The Apostle John reminds us that no one has seen God at any time. The only God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he, he has made him known to us. And the Father proclaims, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus himself says, believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his work. Verse 
And again, he says, all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Second parallel is that of the recipients of this revelation. Emphasizing that God spoke to our fathers implies that history, tradition, scripture are witnesses of this fact. And Moses reminds the children of Abraham that God will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. What God spoke long ago by Moses and the prophets still matters. We cannot separate the old from the new. But in these last days, God has spoken to us. This implies that the writer to the Hebrews, as well as the Jews to whom he writes, and by contrast, us ourselves, since we are in fact brothers and sisters with them, are witnesses of the special, particular revelation that has occurred in these last days. The same God, the God who spoke to our fathers is the same God who has spoken to us. This word matters. And it matters all the more. And it's not disconnected from the word our fathers received. Yes, long ago, God spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son. That's the next parallel. Paul, when preaching to the Jews in Antioch, said, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's a connectedness. In the past, in many ways and through many prophets, God progressively revealed his truth. And what God says now, one way through one person, the son clarifies the intention of the word spoken by the prophets. This revelation that God has spoken to us fulfills what was spoken to our fathers. Christ himself said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill. To Noah was revealed the quarter of the world from which Messiah would come. To Micah, the town where he would be born. To Daniel, the time of his birth. To Malachi, the forerunner who would come before him. And to Jonah, a shadow or a type of the 
death and resurrection he would have. Every one of those pieces of revelation occurred at different times, but all in some way relate to one another. And all in some way point to the Messiah. The Christ. But only in Jesus Christ himself was everything brought together. Only in the Son was everything made whole. It's only in him that this revelation became full and complete. So why does it matter? Why does God's revelation by his son matter all the more than what we had previously? And I think we find that out at the end of verse two. We read that it is the son whom God appointed heir of all things. This language of appointing him heir does not imply some transmission of property. Rather, it more generally speaks of this idea of taking permanent possession of what God has given. A great paradigm of this is the nation of Israel taking possession of the promised land that God has given. Christ, the Son of God, the fulfillment of all that God spoke, has taken permanent possession of all creation. He says through the psalmist, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You see, it was never just about Israel. It wasn't just about this one particular people. It was always about redeeming the nations. It was always about bringing all creation under him. Seed of the woman. Crushing the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham by which all the nations would be blessed. The seed that came through the kingly line of David, a perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the new and perfect Adam, Jesus Christ fulfilling God's promises in the old covenant and initiating the new covenant in his blood. Christ is the end of all things. Everything that exists finds its true meaning only when it comes under the final control of of Christ. And knowing that Christ is the heir reminds us that without him we are destitute of all good things. But he's also the beginning of all things. We read that it is through Christ that God created the world. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us, 
There is but one God, the Father, for whom all things, for whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And again, we read in the prologue of John's gospel, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Except for his complete sinlessness, his total righteousness, nothing more sets Christ apart from us than his creatorship. Ability to create, if you remember, is something that only God has. And the fact that Jesus creates indicates that he himself is God. He created everything, material, and everything spiritual. The word translated world here implies not just the physical earth, but also time, space, energy, and matter. Christ created the whole universe and everything that makes it function. And in verse 3, we find that it is Christ, the Son, and only Christ, who perfectly relates to God. We read, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This radiance represents Jesus as the very manifestation of God. He expresses God to us. No one can see God and live. We learn that from Moses in Exodus. The only radiance that reaches us from God is mediated to us from Jesus. One commentator said that just as the rays of the sun light and warm the earth, so Jesus Christ is the glorious light of God shining into the hearts of men. And just as the sun was never without and cannot be separated from its brightness, so God was never without and cannot be separated from the glory of Christ. John says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He describes Christ as the true light, which gives light to everyone, a light that shines in the darkness and is not overtaken. And Christ himself says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John gives us eyewitness testimony that he and others have seen the very Glory of Christ, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The entire ministry of Jesus was evidence of God's glory. When Peter caught a glimpse of this glory at the transfiguration, and Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white, 
All he could say was, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If, if you will, let, let me build a tabernacle for you. A tabernacle. The very thing that at the base of Mount Sinai, God gave instructions so detailed, so specific to build. The very thing that God, by the Spirit, appointed very skilled craftsmen to make. And here's this fisherman saying, Lord, the only thing I can think of to do is to, to build a tabernacle, to build the very representation of God dwelling amongst his people. Peter wanted to build that for Jesus. But the sun is not just the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. His very being is the express image of God. Christ was not only God manifest, he was God in very substance. Paul explains in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Anytime I hear the phrase image of God, my mind immediately races to Genesis 1, where we hear that we, mankind, the crown of God's creation, were made in his image. And I'm also reminded of how we marred that image so greatly. How we ruined so great a gift. How we cast shame and a shadow on the one true, perfect, and loving God who made us. We're unrecognizable. But Christ... The Son, Jesus Christ, restores that image. He sets for us this perfect example. And by his spirit, day by day, in his sanctifying work, we are being made more and more like him. This indelible, unmovable image of God. To speak of Christ is to speak of God. And likewise, to speak of God is, in fact, to speak of Christ. In the second half of verse 3, we find that it is Christ who also perfectly relates to his inheritance. First, we read he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Simply put, this is Christ's work of providence, divine providence. All things were not only made through him. He not only attained permanent possession of all of that created order, but it is by his omnipotent word that all things hold together. And it's a continuous action. 
It's not a set it and forget it. Every second of every day, by the power of his word, the son maintains his possession. It's Christ guiding all things to their divinely predetermined end in a way that's consistent with their created nature. All to the glory and praise of God. This encompasses every aspect of the created order. From beginning to end, from heaven to earth, from the animate to the inanimate. From individuals like you and me to nations. From ours to ages. From weeds that spark up in your yard all the way to the wheat that grows in the fields. From birth to death. From catastrophe, utter destruction that we find to calm everything Everything is within the loving presence and involvement of Christ. Next, we read that it is Christ, the Son, who made purification for sins. In other words, Christ atoned for the sins of his people. The prophet Isaiah says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He goes on to say, he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors, yet he, he himself bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even in this very book of Hebrews, we read that for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And Peter likewise reminds us that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Such a wonderful work when Jesus created the world. And even more wondrous how he maintains it by the power of his word. But thanks be unto God that we know him in another way. 
that God has revealed himself to us, spoken to us in the Son as Redeemer, as Savior, washing all who place their trust and their faith in him so that we, once enemies of God, in rebellion against him so that we might be called children, sons and daughters, adopted into his household because he's revealed himself to us in Christ as Redeemer. Finally, the text shows us that it is Christ who reigns supreme. It reads, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It just amazes me when I read this passage. The first thing I see is that he sat down. How wonderful is that? Jesus sat down. But something happened before that that we can't miss. He sat down after making purification for our sins. In other words, his work is finished. No more sacrifice. No more slaughter of sheep and goats and Bowls and hopes that, Lord, you would forgive me. No more substitutes. Christ has finished it all. The perfect, sinless, spotless lamb and the perfect, holy, everlasting high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, all embodied in the enthroned Christ. with thousands of years of this sacrificial system could not accomplish in the old covenant. Christ accomplished once for all time. And he sits. So wonderful a truth. Not only that, but he sits in a particular place. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. This concept of enthronement at God's right hand gives us the impression of the son's royal power, his unparalleled glory. Christ, king over all he possesses. God himself says, I've set my king on Zion. 
my holy hill. And again, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And yet again, kiss the son. Lest you be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's to the son that the Lord says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it is Christ who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And the choice of the word majesty in the place of God only sharpens the impression of the Son's incomparable glory. It both affirms the eternal majesty of God and asserts the supreme exaltation of Christ. All without compromising either one. It is also Christ who is said to be much superior to the angels. We've seen how revelation by him is certainly far superior to that of the prophets who are in this earthly realm, but now we are told more clearly how superior he is to the angels who are in the heavenly realm. Peter tells us that the enthroned Christ rules with angels, authorities, and powers having all been subjected to him. And likewise, in Hebrews 1.9, we find that all God's angels worship him. We can go to the book of Revelation where we find Christ referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And we find that many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How wonderful it is that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, this idea of a name more excellent than theirs. I 
think scholars go back and forward trying to figure out what that name is. Some say Jesus, some say another. But that which is so far more excellent than that of the prophets, than that of the angels, than that of any name that could ever be given another is the very title of my son. Christ, the Son, God's enthroned King, the very radiance of His glory, an imprint of His nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power, the spotless Lamb of God, our great high priest, He who is both the beginning and and the end of all things is more excellent than we can ever imagine. God spoke. Yes, he spoke long ago at many times and in many ways, but he has never spoken more clearly than he does in Christ. One who thinks of Jesus is anything less than God is a fool and a liar. This Christ, this crystal clear revelation of God bids all to come. He says, follow me. The one who made purification for our sins says, follow me. The one who holds the future he says, follow me. The one who holds all creation as his permanent possession says, follow me. Do you not see his supremacy in all things? How much greater he is to anything that you can imagine? Do you not see the mercy of our benevolent King Jesus? If so, why tarry? He bids us today. Today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you have ears to hear? There's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only in Jesus that salvation is possible. And he's accomplished just that for all who place their trust and faith in him. He is son. He is king. He is God. Let us pray.